Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. Common Ground is a core class that meets weekly at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Our teacher, Lee Eric Fesco, is using this series to take a look at some of the parables of Christ. We hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, let me grab this. As most of you know by now, I think that I am the father of two children, okay? Uh, and uh, those two boys are now 11 and, and 13 years old. And what I'm constantly amazed at is, I got to find my notes here, I'm not even in the, the right lesson here. Uh, what I'm constantly amazed at is that they are two boys, distinct individuals, from the same parents, they've grown up in the same household, under the same rules, under the same guidelines and all that, yet they can turn out to be so drastically different. You know, how's that possible? And this is not the, Tracy and her family the same way, her, her and her brother, so completely opposite. My brother and I are somewhat close, but grow, grew up, we were very different, very, very different. My older son, Jack, was always the shy one. If it's possible, Jack was shy since the day he was born. Okay, we used to drop him off right over here at the nursery, uh, right before church, and he wouldn't be able to stay with all the other infants in the, in the classroom. Every week we'd go to pick him up, and, and one of the nursery workers would have him in a stroller, just strolling him up and down the hallway. Uh, and this was, it was this way every single time for I don't know how many years, just because he was just deathly afraid of going into to being with the other, other, other kids, other infants. Now, Logan, on the other hand, when we would drop off our older son, Jack, at preschool, uh, Tracy would usually have to go in with Jack to make sure he was settled and, and reassure him that she'd be there later to pick him up. And, and uh, so as she's trying to reassure the older child, meanwhile, Logan, the younger child, was just tagging along with mom because, you know, he, hadn't old, he wasn't old enough to start preschool yet. Yet he'd go in there, he'd settle himself at one of the tables, he'd get the crayons and start coloring, he'd start talking to the kids. So how's your mom doing? Is she doing okay? Everything well? You know, I haven't seen you in a while. And just start mixing up with the other kids while Tracy's trying to settle down uh, the older one that, that we're about to uh, leave there in the, in the classroom. So we had one morbidly shy child, another child we would call Mr. Mayor because he was just always uh, after, you know, uh, whatever the opposite of shy was, that's what he was, okay? I have only one child who loves baseball and the other child uh, who has no desire to play baseball after the one terrifying season he had playing baseball, okay? I have one child who'll eat just about anything, anything. And my other child is so picky when it comes to food, it makes no sense. He will tell you he hates cheese. Like I've literally seen him run from cheese. Like his brother will hold up a bag of cheese and he will run from him. Unless it's on pizza, then he loves cheese. <laughs> cheese is fantastic. Or if it's cheese inside of the Mexican cheese dip at the Mexican restaurants, loves cheese. You know, but all other applications of cheese, it literally makes him gag. And I just, I'm tired of trying to figure it out. I don't get it. Or my older son, he's like, hey dad, you wanna go get some sushi? <laughs> my wife won't even say that to me. You know, so he's, he's very, his, his palate is quite diverse, okay? So my two children, same parents, raised in the same household, yet very, very different. Now, we're in a series whereby we're exploring the parables of Jesus. And this week we're gonna be discussing a parable where Jesus is comparing two brothers. Okay, he's comparing two brothers. This parable is known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, we often think about this parable from the standpoint of only one of the sons. We tend to focus only on one of the sons and really pull the lesson out of that. Uh, we think about a wayward son that goes off and eventually comes back. And the lesson that we take away from that is that you can never run too far away from God. He's always there to bring you back home. And yes, that's certainly true. Thank God it's certainly true. But like I mentioned to you in an email yesterday, there's often an underlying message in these, in these parables that might not be plainly visible on the surface. If you only went in and read just the text of the parable of the prodigal son, 
you wouldn't get the full meaning of what's that, what that parable is all about. Because again, as, we, as I told you a couple weeks ago, Jesus taught in parables to clarify and to confuse. To clarify for his disciples and often to confuse or, or, or hide the meaning to the, the scribes and Pharisees and teachers uh, that were always so critical of him, okay? And so it's easy to go in and look at this parable and read it and even come away thinking, you know what? This parable doesn't apply to me right now. I'm not a, I'm not a prodigal. Maybe one day if I go wayward or something like that, then this, this parable applies to me. But this, this really doesn't apply to me. Maybe this is something that will be used one day to, to bring me back home. But right now I'm good. Okay? Well, there's much more to it than that. There's much more to it than that. I said this parable is not about one son. Okay? This parable is about two sons. It's about a younger brother and an older brother. And dare I say it, all of us will fit into one of these two camps. Okay? The older brother or the younger brother. First things first, this is a parable that we tend to look at through sentimental eyes too, okay? It, it, it's very heart-wrenching, has a heart-wrenching storyline to it, and we're suckers for emotion. We really are. This parable is chock full of it. However, if we look at the context where Jesus is teaching this parable and to whom he's talking, this, this reaction of the audience would have been anything but emotional. Uh, they might have been emotional, at least not in the happy sense, but they would have been emotional in the angry sense when they're, when they're reading this parable, okay? So our parable begins in the 15th chapter of Luke, verse 11. However, it's told in the context and alongside of two other parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. So let's look at the first two verses of Luke 15. Uh, Luke 15, 1-2 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the first thing we have to realize before, that, before we read our parable that we're going to get into is Jesus, who he's talking to. And verses 1 and 2 sort of detail this for us. They set the stage. The tax collectors and sinners were gathering around him. This was not uncommon. This was quite common for Jesus, for that the, uh, the tax collectors and sinners would gather around him and all the religious leaders of the day and the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they didn't like this at all. They didn't think he should be hanging around with those types of people. What's he doing hanging around with those type of people, all right? And so right from the get-go, what we have to realize when we read our parable, this parable about the prodigal son, is that this is more than a parable about a way- wayward son who comes back. This is a parable that compares and contrasts two brothers. Uh, so comparing and contrasting, this, Jesus is comparing one brother against another. In fact, we, we call this parable the parable of the prodigal son, or some of your Bibles might say the parable of the lost son. But if we, if we, go, if we take Jesus' lead, how he starts off the parable, he calls it, he calls it, he says, this is, we might call it the, the man and his two sons, the man and his two sons. So, he, so as we read this parable, there's two brothers being contrasted, and one of those two brothers are, are represented by the two groups of people that he's talking to uh, right there in his midst, okay? The one brother would be the sinners and tax collectors, and so again, they may not have realized this right in the moment. Maybe some of them did, maybe some of them didn't. We don't know, okay? But one brother being the parable of the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors, and the other brother being the the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day. So he's setting up these two brothers, these two brothers, but yet he's putting them in these two groups. Sometimes we miss this when we go through this parable, but this is exactly what he's saying. It's exactly what he's talking about, okay? So let's read through it. And, and if they were picking, if the, if the Pharisees were picking up on this, I promise you they weren't happy about it, okay? It may have been going over their head, but I, but I promise you if they were picking up on it, they weren't too pleased with this. So let's, let's get into it. Let's read through this, keeping in mind that we're comparing the two brothers, brothers that are uh, the sinners and tax collectors and Pharisees and scribes, okay? This is Luke 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Question for you. Do you think this was common back then for a son to ask for his inheritance while his father was still alive? No, of course. Is it common today? Well, <laughs> I have... <laughs> I have two, two boys, and they often will, will just right there pontificate audaciously in front of me, when dad dies, I would like to get his phone. The phone's going to be worthless in about three years, so I, how, I just wonder, how soon do you think it is that I'm going to, this is not going to be worth anything pretty soon? Or one of them says, when dad dies, I call the house, okay? I'm, like, I'm right here. I'm right here. And... And when I die, I'm going to give the house to your mother if she's still with us. And if she's not with us, I'm going to give it to a bunch of orphans who will be more grateful than you <laughs> to receive something like that. But, but sometimes I think them discussing those diseases worse than what the younger brother is doing. But, but it's still rude. It's, nonetheless, nonetheless, it wasn't common to do this. It was unheard of to ask for this. So, so to hear his son ask for his share of the estate is tremendously hurtful. This is tremendously hurtful. It's as if the son was telling his father, quite literally, I have no use for you. I, I only have use for your, your stuff. I only have use for your inheritance. I have no use for you. I just want your stuff. He has no regard for his father. So if we're trying to consider what this type of lost person that we're, if, it's, if we're setting up this one brother here, okay, this is the, the wayward brother. If, this is, if we're trying to compare and contrast two lost people, two types of lost people, Okay, this is the, the type of, of person uh, that might be the typical lost person that we think about. Whenever we think about lost people, this might be the kind of person that we're thinking about. It was the kind of person who says, you have your truth, I have mine. In the end, all that matters is that I am my own God. Okay, uh, I want to be in control. This is what this brother is saying here. I, I want to be in control. I want to be the one in charge. And when, again, when you think about lost people, this is what you should think about. This is generally what we think about. I want to be my own God. This has, been the, this has been the struggle with humanity ever since the garden, is that they say, I want to be in charge. I want to be God. I don't, I don't have regard for what you're saying. I would rather defer to what I think and what I want. I am my own God here. I want to be in control. Okay, makes sense so far? So far so good? Yeah? All right, let's keep going. This is verse 13 and following. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered away his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe man, uh, famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So here we have a picture of the sinner living in open rebellion to God. Okay? It's, it's as is always the case when someone comes to the father, they, they do so out of desperate need. When someone becomes a Christian, when someone comes to the Father and repents, it's always done out of desperate need. Their dependence on self has not produced what they hoped for. And it would be, they take a look at themselves from the bottom and they think that the only option I have now is to go up. I'm all the way at the bottom here, okay? It's done in desperation. Now, here's what this is showing to us. For this type of person, for this type of person to come to the Father, what has to happen? What did the Son do? Okay, what had to happen here? 
He rejected his father and he tried to put something else in his place. He rejected his father and tried to fill it with anything and everything else. So if that's what he did when he left his father, what's it going to take for him to return to his father? What's the next action that he has to take? Say it again. Confess. Confess. He's got to repent. He's got to, whatever he took in, whatever he decided to put in the place of the father, he's got to then push that out, reject it, and then replace what the what, 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 replace the father himself okay and so what, what we call that we call it dying to self he's got to die to himself whatever he put in there on, on his own terms he's now got to undo that right and die to self okay that's he had to he had to die to himself anything short of this would, would prevent him from returning to his father okay but at the same time he, he had no choice this is what this is what we're seeing in this parable he had no choice when you reach bottom there's really no place left to go he had nothing to claim He had nothing to claim, nothing which he could boast. His only option at this point, the only option for the son at this point was to either die or what? Or go back or repent. Die or repent. That's what what he was left to do, okay? So what does this younger brother have to do to go back home? He has to die to self. He has to die to himself and awaken to the love of the father. Okay, so far so good, right? Right? We generally understand this much of the parable. And and you can even imagine the Pharisees listening to this and maybe even somewhat agreeing and understanding, yeah, this is what bad people have to do, okay? Hopefully he learned his lesson, this this kid. And hopefully he won't do something that I get. Now, Now go clean yourself up and go home. Subtle difference here. That's the mindset of the Pharisee. Now go clean yourself up and go home, all right? But that's not quite how the story goes. All right, and that's really indicative of, of the love of the Father here. He doesn't clean himself up and heads home. Instead, what does he do? In his filth, in his disgusting nature, he'd been eating with pigs. I think I talked about this a few weeks back. It's bad enough that he's messing with pigs, but now eating the very wanting and craving the very food of the pigs. This is like saying he's at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And this is the state he's in when he decides it's time to go home. Not cleaning himself up. He's disgusting, and he's headed home. In his filth, he does this, verse 20. This should be 20 to 24. Yeah. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, don't miss this, I love this. I love this so much. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Get chills every time I read that. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's one of the most beautiful pictures in all the Gospels. Okay. Where about you? Raise the roof. That's right. I see. (laughs) Chip. Yes. I've read this somewhere, and I don't know if you can verify it, but that it was really a case of humbling himself, father, to run yeah. out to the mm-hmm. sun and have to lift up his robe mm-hmm. to show his legs as, as he was. It would have been an utter lack of self-respect for an affluent landowner, an affluent person like this in this, in this state, for him to, to, to pick up his robe and to run. Okay, we don't we don't get the the sense of that nowadays, and there's there's I think there's something symbolic about that. Okay, that the that the the affluent father, again running past his the the, the hired help there at his house, and then perhaps running through the town, to, because he saw his son off in the distance, 
and running up to him to meet his sons. Hang on to that thought. Hang on to that thought because I, I don't think we should miss it. I don't think, and thank you for bringing it up, I don't think we should miss it. It's a beautiful picture what the Father does to us is that he, he runs to us. He doesn't wait for us to come groveling back. He is the one who runs to us. He chases after us, okay? This could have been the shortest parable in the Bible. I think I've told you this before. The, the son could have said, Father, I want my share of the inheritance. And the father could have said, every right, every right. He could have said, no, go back to work. End of parable, okay? What do we do with that though, right? He allowed the son to go so far out. For what purpose? To bring him back. Okay, and sometimes, you know, you, you try and assign all kinds of different meanings to what's, what's going on here, but, you know, you really have to just take it for what it says here. Y you get the sense that was the father ever at home sort of wringing his hands, waiting for the son to come back? Or did he just, you know what, go ahead. For what purpose? To bring him back. I do this with my kids all the time. You know, my kids will be frustrated, you know, wanting to work on something and they're trying to just hammer their way through. I'm like, you know what? You want my help? No! Okay. <laughs> you can do it. Go for it. For what purpose am I doing that? Am I just leaving them off to their own devices? Or do, or do I want them to get to the point where they're coming to me asking me, so, so who's the mastermind here? Who's, who's really in control here? In the parable, who's really in control here? Is the father ever, oh, I hope he comes home. I hope he comes back. Or did he say, go ahead, because I think I know what's going to happen here. I think I know what's going to happen. I think I know how this is going to end. And I'm going to let you do it because I want to bring you back. Because I want to bring you back here. And I think that's also indicative of the fact that he is looking for him. It's expectant that he's expecting his son to come over the, the, the ridge or whatever because he, he, he knows what's going to happen here, right? It's expectant, all right? Um, so the, so the father looked in the direction from when he expected to see the son return, and when he saw he didn't waste any time, he ran. Again, laying aside all dignity and decorum, he ran to meet his, his barefoot, disgusting son dressed in rags. And, and here's the thing that's easy to miss. During this period of time, uh, just like we were talking, it, it, this, would have been, this would have been not kosher. This would have been not, not good uh, for this affluent guy to, to, to run through the fields. But no, notice what this is. Notice what this is. Instead of the son walking in, going through the town, catching all the derision and, and, and chiding from the people, oh, there he is. There's that loser as he walks through town, as he walks up into the property and sees all the other workers. Oh, look who's back. Look who it is. There's only one person that could have shielded him from that kind of shame. And it was the father. The father made a spectacle of himself to shield the shame that the son would have otherwise had to bear. So do you see what this is saying? The son not only takes away our sin, but he, he takes away our shame. And the shame that was meant for us, that would have been intended for us, what does he do? He takes it upon himself. He takes it upon him and makes a spectacle of himself so that the son doesn't have to absorb that shame. You see what a beautiful picture of the gospel this is? You see how you might miss this? How you might not catch this? I don't think the Pharisees would have ever caught that. I don't think they would have caught that, but we, we, we get to catch it here. We get to see it. That the, the Father, He takes your shame. Not only does He take your sin, but He takes your, sh your shame. And, he, and he, he kisses the Son and accepts Him as a member of the family before His Son could even fall to His feet. And, and He embraced Him and kissed Him. And, and He was given a robe, which is something that would only have been reserved for, the, for the, either the family or, or, the, or the highest of guests. He was given a ring, a ring which signifies authority in the family. 
Okay, he was given authority to see his position in the household. He was given sandals to indicate he was a free man. His slaves would have likely not been able to wear sandals. They would have been uh, probably barefoot. He calls for the fatted calf because there was going to be a party for the whole neighborhood, which harkens back to a verse earlier in the chapter, verse 7 of the same chapter, when he says this. This is all in the same context. Just so, I tell you, there will be plenty more in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99. Listen to this. This is where we're going with this parable than over 99 uh, righteous persons who need no repentance. This is where this parable is going here. Over the 99 who need no repentance. This, this was a celebration of reconciliation. The, the son was being restored. He was being fully accepted by his father. And just so we don't miss it, we have to say that this is exactly as we are treated when we place our trust in Christ. This is exactly it. We are treated not just as children, but we're treated as heirs. We're treated as Christ himself. We're given the royal treatment because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. All right? We're, we wear Christ's robes. We're fully reconciled with the Father. Ephesians 1.11, we're told, in him we have obtained an inheritance, and now we are co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. Do you see this? Any further questions about that? That's what, I'll just stop there on the younger son so you can see that this is one picture of this lost individual. And this is typically how we might even think of lost people, how, how they, 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 they reach the bottom and then they, 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 they humble themselves and they come back and, and Christ receives them and treats them as, as a son, okay? That's one type of lost person. All right. Any other questions or thoughts about that before we continue? Quickly try and cover the second son here. Because remember, this is a parable, not just about one son. This is a parable about two sons. I think you have, yeah. a point you made earlier, earlier of that he had to die to himself. He had yeah. to come without condition. <laughs> he had to die to himself. Okay. Now we, we want to hang on to that thought and let's, let's see what, what's going on here with the second son. Okay. Let's read about the older brother now. His account starts in verse 25 and following, Luke 15, 25. Now, his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. Remember who this is. Remember who we're talking about here, okay? The scribes and Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law. He heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entered uh, and entreated him, uh, but he answered his father, look these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with your prostitutes, killed, uh, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you, you are always with me. All and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He's lost and is found. Now, again, you have to realize what's going on here. Christ is holding up a mirror to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He's holding up to them saying, take a look. Does this remind you of anybody? When you look in a mirror, it should remind you of you. <laughs> Does this look familiar? Look, look what I'm doing to you here, all right? And the Pharisees, if they were picking up on this, they, they can't be happy about it, right? So Jesus is now showing us the second type of lost person in the older brother, all right? And this type of lost person might catch us a little off guard because this is the kind of person that stayed with his father, was obedient, and did all the right things, and is a good moral person. And the reason this throws us off a bit is because when we think of lost people, we don't typically think of obedient, church-going, moral people, do we? We don't. Okay? It throws us off a bit. I was recently having a conversation with one of my former co-workers uh, who, who moved here from the north, and she was thrown off by the culture of Christianity here. 
uh, in the, it's funny because Paul was talking a little bit about this. I'm not talking specifically about uh, God not being present in the north. He is present in the north. But the culture is different. The way that, that, that uh, Christians express their culture, it's different in the north than it is here. In northern cities like New York and, and uh, the non-Christians are generally, generally speaking, almost happily outspoken about it. You know, speaking generally here. Uh, not only are, there, are they not Christians, but they're proudly not Christians. They might even look down on you for being Christian. Okay, and then she noted the Christians here are quite a bit harder to discern. Okay, Christian here is almost a part of the culture. Going to church is more just part of the culture here. Just because someone goes to church doesn't automatically mean they're Christian. This is her observations, not you know, not mine here, but I can see how that's true. Uh, that's partly what this parable is, is showing that just because someone is good, part of the culture, does all the right things, doesn't mean they're not as lost as the other brother was. Okay, look at verse 28. What do we read here? But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Do you see what just happened there? The father had gone into the house to meet one son, to chase down one son. Now what's he doing with the other son? He's going out of the house and chasing down the other son. He's chasing both his sons into the house, but now it's the older brother who's refusing to enter the house. He's turned his back on the father. In effect, he's the prodigal now. Do you ever think of the older brother as being the prodigal? He's the prodigal too, okay? And notice the irony here. He's telling the father, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Do you see the irony in that? The son sees himself as a slave, not as a son. He doesn't really understand what sonship means and therefore doesn't understand what fatherhood means either. Okay, he tells him in verse 31, he tells him, all that's mine is yours. That's, that's your position. But the older brother is saying, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Is, is it possible to be like that and still be lost? It certainly is. It certainly is. See, if you're lost like the older brother is, if you're lost like the older brother is, you're lost because of yourself righteousness okay and, and what is is wrong with self-righteousness if you're relying on your own righteousness to find favor with god instead of relying on the righteousness of jesus cross well guess what that means it means very likely that you are lost and the reason i say very likely instead of just lost is because you and i i do this all the time i still have a tendency to rely on my own self-righteousness i do it all the time thinking that our righteousness somehow earns us capital with god it doesn't it doesn't Okay, um, it just means uh, we're, we're being sanctified, and hopefully over time we learn to rely less and less on our own righteousness and, and more and more increasingly on His, which is the only righteousness that matters in this equation. Okay, have you, ever, have you ever noticed yourself doing this, asking God why He would allow certain circumstances to befall you? Have you ever done that? I have. I've done it. Uh, God, I've done all these things for you. I read my Bible. I go to church, I, I try and raise my family. Why, why would you allow this? Why would you allow me to go through this? All right? If that's how God worked, who's really in control? Who's really calling the shots? If I do this, then you have to do that. Who's really in control? Who's in charge there? It's possible to be so self-righteous that you're lost, and, and bless you, and and asking God why we'd allow certain circumstances to befall you. But God, I've done all these things for you. I read my Bible, I do all that. Uh, you know, that, it's really reversing the relationship at that point, okay? Um, and what this means is that it's quite possible that there are people sitting in the pews of our church right now 
that are as lost as the older brother, excuse me, lost as the younger brother, okay? People with very moral lives who wouldn't dream of disobeying God, but they are lost. They're lost. You see these people who believe the way to salvation is finding out what the rules are and following them. It's those people, and they look very good. It looks very good on the surface, right? And as long as they follow the rules, they're in. But what's the standard? Is the standard following the rules pretty good? The, 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 the standard is following the rules to perfection. And who's done that? Jesus. Only one. Only Jesus. It's only his righteousness that we can re- rely upon. Um, so that was the, the spotlight that, the Je- that Jesus was shining on the Pharisees. Take a look. This is what you're doing. You're the older brother, and you are just as lost as they are. You're just as lost as the older brother. Um, and here's what really makes it so difficult, so complicated uh, for us as a church. Younger brothers know they're alienated from God. It's not hard to spot the younger brothers. You know, you see them. But the older brothers, it's the older brothers, they, they don't know they need Jesus. That's the trouble with the older brother. They don't know they're just as lost as the younger brother, but they don't know that they need Jesus. Okay? And so just like the, just like the younger brother, just like the, young, the older brothers need to do the very same thing. What do they need to do? They need to die to themselves. They need to die to their own righteousness and, and, and rely solely. Because again, you know, you can be as righteous as you want, but it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. So at that point, you have to lay aside your own righteousness. One of my favorite quotes is, is uh, by, let me see if I find it here, is by John Gerstner, who's an old theologian and uh, um, uh, author. And he says, it's not so much your, your sin that separates from you from God, it's your damnable good works. It's that you try and prop yourself up with all your great things. You're, that's, that's still as lost as the younger brother. You still have to die to yourself, set that righteousness aside, and believe in the one that, that, that can only satisfy the standard of God, and that's Jesus Christ, okay? Any other questions on that? One more point that I want, one more small point that I want to make on this, and yeah. I guess, is there something to a transitive relationship between the brothers through the father that... Is a, explain a little bit more. What do you mean by a transitive relationship between the brothers? Well, so the, the older brother is uncomfortable being with the younger brother. Mm-hmm. The younger brother, obviously, is probably uncomfortable, period. Mm-hmm. had to die to self. But is there something that, through the father in this relationship, that there's a comfort being with the brothers together? Mm-hmm. Perhaps. You know, I'm, I, I, the, the thing about parables, and this is what's tricky, because I, we so often want to, and I do this myself, I want to go in and I tr- try and assign meaning to every little detail in there. And sometimes it's not, it's that generally speaking for the parables, he's trying to make one, Jesus is trying to make a, a sort of a central point. And, uh, and we want to try, and, and I've heard it said, you don't want to take, run that dog on, on four legs. You can't run that dog on four legs, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> So in other words, you want, to, you want to stick to the main point and then not try. There may, be, there may be a connecting point there, but I think the point that he's trying to set up is trying to show us these two brothers, trying to show us the rebellion, open rebellion of the younger brother and the hidden rebellion of the older brother and saying, you know what the result is? Or, you, know what the, you know what their need, both of their need is? Both of them die to self and rely on Christ. That's the message, I think, that the sole message that he's really trying to and we may be able to find some other neat little things in there too, you know, sort of like uh, how the affluent landowner that, I think that's a point that we can take there that applies there. But beyond that, we don't want to go terribly too, too deep. We just don't want to stick on the surface with, uh, with the parables. I know that's tough to say, you don't, because generally surface is a bad thing, but yeah. Is it reaching too far um, to read into the fact that the father went to the older son and treated him? Like, I don't think so. Only, be, only because we see that, we see that, 
characterized throughout Scripture. It's not, we, don't, we don't just find that one detail here in this parable, but that is a common theme, the Father's pursuit of us. Uh, we see that all throughout the Gospel, all throughout this, uh, the Scriptures, Old Testament to New Testament. So I feel, I, that's why I don't feel like that one would be a stretch. You're still given a chance. Yeah, you're still given a chance. The older son was still given a chance to, to get yeah. back mm-hmm. into the fold, to yeah. join the first. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, like, uh, amplifying that, the fact that, I mean, we, we hear Jesus talking about the Pharisees a lot. He is going after, he is actually going after them. Yeah. That's right. And I think you can really back up the, you know. And I think we like to tend to, we have a tendency to say, oh, the Pharisees and just kind of all flesh. But there were some Pharisees there at the end. It's believed that he was, that Jesus was actually buried in the tomb of one of the Pharisees. Again, so it did sink in. It did manage to get, get, get its, the message through to, to some of these scribes and teachers of the law. You know, as a whole, he was very frustrated and angry with them, but it didn't fall on totally deaf ears, you know. Uh, Chip, did you have something? I was just going to feed off of what they said earlier. That it, I think looking at the Father in this parable, it demonstrates that God is always faithful to seek after us, even though we're unfaithful to Him. That's right. That's exactly right. Let me leave you with one final point, uh, and then we can get out of this hot box. And that is, think about this. Think about the logistics here of, uh, of what, what happened. Okay, so the, the younger son, the younger son leaves. He says, I want my, my, uh, my inheritance. Okay, and typically how the inheritance would have been divided back then is the senior brother would have gotten two-thirds and the younger brother would have gotten a third. So he probably took his third and split. Okay, but, and he blew it all. So that's one-third that's gone. Okay, so when he comes back, how is he treated? He's treated the same. He's treated as a co-heir. So what does that mean for the father and the two-thirds that he has left? He's got to sort of redivide it. So who gets ripped off there? Who gets ripped off? It's the older brother. The older brother who had his two-thirds, would have had his two-thirds, but now he's got to redivide it again and send it. So at what cost did, at what cost did bringing the younger brother back have? At whose cost was that? So at the cost of the older brother. And what this, is, what this is doing, this is setting us a picture of Christ, who is the true older brother, who is the true one who had to sacrifice something, who sacrificed something. It was at his sacrifice that enabled you, the younger brother, to be reconciled with the father. It came at his sacrifice. It came at his sacrifice, but instead of pitching a fit like the older brother in this parable did, Christ, the true older brother, the true older brother welcomed us in at his cost, at his expense, and did so gladly, gladly so that you could be next to him in heaven, and you could see him face to face. I just want to leave you with that thought. Any other final thoughts before we, we close in prayer and, and are dismissed? Leave here happily reconciled younger brothers to your older brother. Okay? All right. Who wants to close us in prayer? Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next week. If you have any questions, please feel free to leave a comment for us. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review and subscribe. Have a great week.